tonight. Not finally, just kidding, not finally. This is not finally. There is, there is two more fabulous acts. Um, and here's the next one. One of the most successful and thoughtful titans of industry is joining us. We'll have a, a conversation and some brief remarks, but first, take a look at this video. I'm saying here is if you look at the outcomes, um, the outcomes of the majority of people, I looked at the bottom 60% of the population and I said, is it working for them? Just facts. Um, it, how has it been for income? How has it been for equal opportunity? And those, this has been something for a long, 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 long time. So is that deniable that it is producing those outcomes? And it is not only producing those outcomes, this isn't controversial. If it's producing those outcomes, and it's also producing a terrible split in our country. And we're gonna have more problems ahead because of technology and other things that are coming at us in terms of having impact that are gonna be like that. If we don't step back and say, how do we reform it? Reform means improve it. But here's the We're going to thank you again to Senator Corker and move to Ray Dalio, who has always been a step or two ahead of the pack. And we are especially proud the common good is to award Ray Dalio for his forward thinking advocacy and for his greater sense of shared prosperity. I am honored to present you Ray Dalio with the American Spirit Award for Business Leadership. Congratulations. Well, thank you, Margaret. Um and thank you to those in the Common Good Forum for uh, this award. And thank you for the good work that you're doing to promote the civil dialogue for that our nation so badly needs right now. Uh, for me and what I care about, uh, this is more precious than an Academy Award. To me, it's an amazing thing that I can be receiving an award from such esteemed people. I see it as an extension of the American dream which is the subject of this evening's conversation. I was born in 1949, so four years after World War II and right as the new world order began. Of course, I had no inkling of how the system worked then and that there would be world orders that followed wars and that great empires rose and fell in cycles. I was just lucky enough to be born at the best place at the best time in history in America, when it was at the top and when the American dream was attainable for a kid like me. I was born into a middle-class family. My dad was a musician who fought in the war and my mom was a stay-at-home mom. I had parents who loved me and raised me and I went to a good public school and had equal opportunity. That, plus having adequate food and having adequate healthcare, 
is all that I needed. And I believe that is all that anyone really needs, but that too many now in America are not getting that. I've seen firsthand through the philanthropic work that my wonderful wife, Barbara, with her education initiative and through other philanthropic activities, I've seen how intolerably terrible the conditions are for many students and people. Consider that in our home state of Connecticut, which has one of the highest per capita incomes in the country, that one in five high school students is either disengaged or disconnected. By disengaged, I mean that they have an absentee rate that is greater than 25% and they are failing in school. By disconnected, I mean that the schools do not know where they are because they have dropped out. Imagine what happens to them and the cost for our society. I've seen that nearly one in four families do not have access to connectivity, which is today like not having access to a telephone was 50 years ago. The injustices, in my opinion, are in, intolerable and it's a terribly ec costly economic experience. Um, and we've lost our inspiration. I remember how different it was for me when I was a kid. I remember at 11 years old, John Kennedy inspiring me. And I remember that it was an inspiring time. Together, we Americans would conquer outer space, eliminate poverty, and eliminate discrimination. And we were excited about our opportunities for the future. It was clear what the American dream was and what the path to achieving it was. When I was a kid, I did jobs kids could do. I caddied, I delivered newspapers, mowed lawns, bus tables, you know, you get the idea. And I took the money and I learned um, and I put it into the stock market. I got hooked on markets. Since then, I've spent over 50 years as a global macro investor. Over the past 10 years, I've been watching three major ominous shifts unfold that people repeatedly in history um, have occurred, but haven't occurred to us since the 1930s. First, I've been watching large and growing gaps in wealth, values, and politics. You talked about that earlier today, leading to intense social and political conflicts. These show up in the statistics. Second, I'm seeing an enormous amount of debt being created and funding these debts with a lot of printing of money, unlike we've seen in, since the 30s. And third, I'm watching rising world power, particularly China, challenging an overextended existing world power, the US. And I'm watching these things causing a lot of economic pain and conflict. I know from studying history, and anyone who studied history should know, that this mix of conditions has repeatedly led to terrible economic conditions and conflicts, wars. I now recognize how much different my life would have been if I was born at a different time in a different place 50 years earlier. Consider that from 1900 until 1949, there were two depressions, two wars, one pandemic, 
and they wiped out nearly all financial wealth and killed 75 million people. Through my research, which if you're interested is shown in a study that you can get online called The Changing World Order, I've developed indicators that track how political and economic situations unfold. These indicators are showing that we are at a critical moment when the decisions that we're making over the coming months and years will determine whether or not we can resolve our conflicts peacefully or whether we will fight with each other. At 71 years old, as I look back on my life and I read history, I'm deeply concerned. The world has changed a lot for Americans over those 71 years. And in my opinion, not for the better. The American dream is certainly not what it used to be. Equal opportunity is by and large lost. No one objective person can believe that the system that we have today is fair and that it is providing anything like equal opportunity and broad-based prosperity. The test of any system is simply how well it works to deliver what most of the people want. It is clear that our capitalist system is failing to do so, so it needs to be reformed. Nothing is exempt from needing to be reformed. Why should capitalism be exempt? I believe that it needs to be reformed in a skillful and bipartisan way, because if that doesn't happen, we will fight with each other and get damaging results. I believe that um, my, my own approach to the problem as, is as an economic engineer, so not as an ideological person. I believe the problems are due to how the economic machine works, not because bad people are doing bad things. For example, I see that understandable pursuit of profits by business leads them to replace people with technologies, to outsource work um, to more cost-effective workers in different countries, and to produce products that those who have a lot of money want to buy and not to produce products that those without financial resources need. Similarly, I see that those who have financial resources and care about their children's educations spend much more money on their children's educations than parents who don't have those resources. And that leads to uh, greater wealth and opportunity divides. And that's an issue. I also see systematic blockages of, to money going to highly productive and socially good things like great public education, eliminating the digital divide, and broadly delivering adequate health services. To engineer an economy well, we have to increase the size of the pie and divide it well. Redistribution without increased productivity won't work any better than increased productivity without broader distribution of the gains. And we have to do this in a bipartisan way. I see this just as an economic engineer. So there's a lot to talk about. So I look forward to uh, discussing that with you and others right now. Wonderful. Well, thank you for giving us sort of setting the table with your overarching thoughts. You know, I, I heard you say over and over again, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, 
capitalism is in need of reform. And then, and so you, you turn to government and politics as the way to reform it. But then as you and I spoke, there was also a recognition that our politics needs to be reformed, that you can't fix one if the thing that would fix that one is broken too. So could you share with us some of your thoughts about how do you fix it? Well, I think there's only one way to fix it, and I, and I think it's kind of a long shot, but uh, the, one, the, the two things you need to do to fix it is to have bipartisanship, because we're going to kill each other, and to have it done in a, and, and with skillful people knowing how to move things around. You know, there are a lot of big changes that need to be made, and, um, but I, I, I think, isn't that true? And if that's true, um, how are we going to get there? So it, I think, um, how do we get, if you think about skillful people who can fix it and want to work across the aisle, I'm looking at former Senator Bob Corker wishing he was back in the Senate because he's one of the people you're talking about. He's skilled, he had real experience, and he was willing to reach across the aisle and solve problems. Do you think, Mr. Dalio, we have, Ray, that we have a, an incentive structure problem in our politics that people like Senator Corker aren't still in the Senate doing the good work? I think we have an understandable set of circumstances where there is a population that feels um, that they're not being taken care of and that the America, the America that they know and they're the place that they love, a large number of, of good people are feeling disenfranchised. And I think on the other side, that there's a large number of people who feel that this is very unfair and other things happen. And that 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 that's how this is how the machine works. The country and the politics are the reflection of the populations, and so what do you do about it? Well, I'll ask the political experts. I wonder, for example, uh, is it possible to have um, a third party of the middle? Um, and and it's not you don't have to elect a president. It doesn't take many senators or congressmen to have votes that can uh, bring it together. But politically, each of the parties is being drawn more to their extremes for various reasons you hear. And so I'll ask others who are experts in the politics, what's your answer of bringing the population together with being mindful of what happens when we don't? Well, there is a, another, uh... Well, I'll just tell you, my husband's quietly jumping in the corner, uh, agreeing with you that there's a path for a third party. And certainly there's a, a, a body of thought that thinks, you know, people like Senator Corker with the reputation he had might have run as an independent, uh, that it, just five independents in the Senate would be enough to, to sort of pull the power back to the middle in the Senate. But if we we're going to end on a, on a positive note, Ray, you know, what, what is giving you hope right now? Well, through all history, and it's certainly true more than ever today, the capacity of humanity to invent and adapt is, is enormous, right? Let I me mean, look at the technology and the various other kinds of adaptations. And we do have enough resources. Our, uh, our GDP and other things are better than they have ever been. And so it, there is the possibility for adapting and engineering well the possibility exists. So I have a, you know, an expression, if, it, um, if you worry, you need, if you don't worry, you need to worry. And if you uh, worry, you don't need to worry. Because 
if there, people were, are worried, they will do something about it. And if they don't worry, we're going to have a problem. So my hope is that we can communicate this kind of worry and find that the alternative is worse and that we will come together with our inventiveness and uh, deal with those problems acceptably. Uh, Ray Dalio, thank you very much for being here, for accepting this award. Uh, you're one of the real thoughtful titans and you've dedicated yourself to giving back in a way that is a, a real um, guides us all. So congratulations on receiving the American Spirit Award for business leadership. We are so grateful for your presence here tonight and for your thoughts. And thank you for what you're doing. Wow. <clears throat> you know, just the, the quality of conversations that we're hearing from these folks tonight is just extraordinary. And yes, I was jumping up and down in the corner when Rodalio mentioned the need for a centrist third party. But um, th these are folks who are developing their extraordinary experiences and capacities to think about the common good, the common ground. And, um, and our, our next recipient is no exception. Um, you know, I, John Meacham uh, is, is a giant in the field of journalism and history uh, and, and bringing ideas, uh, popularizing uh, ideas. And I remember reading Franklin and Winston um, uh, when that came out and just being so struck at, at the innovative approach uh, to take a, a new take on, on, on leaders, looking at them as people first and, and the relationships that could create policies at critical moments in our history. And, and, and his output uh, since um, leaving his EIC of Newsweek and uh, running Random House for a time, but his output consistent with quality is extraordinary uh, for someone who also writes history on the side. Um, so it is a great honor to present this award, but before but, we do but, that- Yeah, video. We're gonna we're do doing video. the video. The video. in a democracy that's the fullest manifestation of all of us, we're the sum, you know, we are in fact the sum of our parts, then the country has to decide at every point, do we want to reach out? Do we want to expand the definition of liberty? Mm -hmm. Do we want to increase the mainstream? Or do we want to build bridges or do we want to build walls? And that becomes, I think, questions for the soul itself. And with that, a perfect way to cap the evening with a final award. It is my honor to present John Meacham with the American Spirit Award for Thought Leadership. John, take it away. Thank you, John. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm gonna take that video and play it for my children who are simply mad at me right now for not taking them to Target. Uh, so that's the, that's the spirit of the Meacham household right now. Uh, <laughs> Delighted, uh, Margaret, I'm sorry I had to write about FDR. 
uh, I think it's a sign of your grace that you are uh, participating in this. Uh, but, okay, uh, you'll have another opportunity to write about Herbert Hoover in the future. I will, I will. One of the things I like to say is that I wanted to do Franklin and Winston. I was sort of glad the way the 30s had turned out the way they did, because I wouldn't have wanted to write Clement and Wendell, uh, <laughs> which would have not, I think, been quite as quite as glamorous. Uh, Herbert and Herbert Asquith might have might have worked. And you've got to love a group where you can make a Herbert Asquith joke, right? <laughs> I mean, it's just a good thing uh, all, all together. Um, thank you all for what you do. And, and Margaret's amazing stewardship of, uh, of the Buckley legacy, which uh, we need more of. Uh, and, uh, and staying here, even after John has said nice words about Bob Corker, is, uh, is particularly uh, uh, a sign of my own uh, grace. Uh, Senator Corker is my, uh, had the best job in the world, which was being the mayor of Chattanooga, and then he went to the Senate. So uh, we're hoping now that he's back, uh, uh, we can uh, keep that road to recovery, recovery strong. I do whatever, like all of you here, I do whatever Patricia Duff says. So uh, I'm thrilled, uh, thrilled to be here, G genuinely honored. And genuinely, the honor itself, and by the way, one more, one more plug. Um, for the very few of you who might not have read John's book on George Washington and the farewell address, go now. Uh, cut me off, go buy it, uh, because it, it's an astute look at the most important thing I think we have to recover in the country, which is that words matter and that rhetoric is not simply something to uh, win clicks and eyeballs, but to convince and persuade and hopefully to the good. So, uh, so I'm, I'm honored, uh, honored that John took the time to do this. Um, a couple of quick thoughts. Um, we in America uh, tend to celebrate and commemorate people who build bridges and not walls, people who liberate and don't keep others captive, those who build and don't tear down. And my appeal when I talk, when I'm lucky enough to talk to people in the public arena is not simply to their moral sensibility about what is good, because I hope we sort of take that for granted, but to make an appeal to vanity, which is what do you want us to say about you? What do you want us to think about you when we're looking at your portrait? And fortunately, most people in public life cannot imagine a world where we're not staring at their portrait. So it has a certain, uh, a certain uh, effectiveness. Do you want to be Margaret Chase Smith or do you want to be Joe McCarthy? Do you want to be George Wallace and Bull Connor or do you want to be John Lewis and Amelia Boykin who was standing two people behind him this coming weekend? And more on John in, in, in a second. We commemorate people who expand that definition of what was the most important sentence ever originally rendered in English. Sorry, John, not about not by George Washington, but but by Thomas Jefferson, that all men were created equal and were endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, among them life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. A sentence that has changed more lives around the world than any other. I am I, I, I am careful about that hyperbole sometimes about in the English language because um, of the old story about the Texas school board candidate who was running for office and was against a referendum to make, uh, not to 
ban Spanish in the public schools was for that. And they said, if English was good enough for our Lord Jesus Christ, it was good enough for Texas. So, uh, you know, that's, that's a, a hesitance I have. But that sentence was what drove the anti-slavery movement. One of Abraham Lincoln's greatest achievements was he did what John Avalon did. He went back to the founders and he discovered a usable and real history about equality and however imperfectly he applied it, he in fact took the American story, sanctified the American story, and used it to build, not to tear down. And so I just want to talk about three quick things. Uh, you all are dedicated to a common good. Very complicated, right, to define what that is. But it's a little like what Justice Stewart said about hardcore pornography, right? You know it when you see it. We intuitively know the United States was founded on the notion, really two notions. One is that reason should take a stand against passion in the arena. And the other was that we have an innate moral sensibility. We know what's right. We don't always, Lord knows, do what's right. But the reason... but all of human experience is about intuiting the right and then seeing if we can overcome our appetites, our ambitions, our worst instincts to come close to that right. Theodore Parker is the originator, the abolitionist in the middle of the 19th century, the originator of the phrase, the arc of a moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. But it only bends toward justice if there are people insisting that it swerve toward justice. And I'd submit that your organization, your hearts and minds make you swervers. You are saying we have to move here. And if folks are here, maybe they get over here. Hopefully they get all the way, but they're not even gonna get this far if they don't, if there aren't people insisting that there is a good and that we have a moral obligation to utilize, uh, to, to draw on an, an overused word, weaponize the light and hope and love. Because a republic can't work without love. It's not a word we use much, right? It, it, it's not something that we think of in our, our public life. But this is the most human of undertakings, what we're doing in this country. A republic is, in fact, the sum of its parts. The founders totally understood that it was going to be a human drama, that politics was not clinical. It was not even constitutional. It was a human drama in which that constitution was going to put up guardrails to try to keep us from doing the wrong thing too often. Their bet, coming out of John Calvin, coming out of John Witherspoon, who taught most of them at Princeton, was that we are fundamentally depraved, to use an 18th century word that we don't use much anymore, that we are sinful, we're fallen, we're fallible, and we are given to putting our self-interest ahead of the common interest. That's a perennial truth until what Faulkner called the last red and dying evening, 
you know, and, until there's an inbreaking of the Holy Spirit or something that changes all of this fundamentally, we are living in that fallen, frail, infallible world. So we are called by reason, by history, and I would argue by God, however you define that, by that innate moral sensibility to make gentler the life of the world. Or as my old friend George H.W. Bush would say, you know, make kinder and gentler the life of the world. I don't do his voice much because as Dana Carvey said, the key to doing a George Herbert Walker Bush impression was Mr. Rogers trying to be John Wayne, you know, not gonna do it. Um, but Bush was exactly right. He was mocked by that, about that. He was mocked for a thousand points of light. And yet a thousand points of light, I would argue is part of that tradition of American scripture, like the better angels of our nature, like all men are created equal, like a house divided cannot stand. These are the words that mean something and they set a goal, an aspiration. We don't get there very much. It's why we celebrate. It's why John and I have something to do to make a living to write about. Because when we achieve justice, as Niebuhr said, the sad duty of politics is to establish justice in a sinful world. Not exactly a big needlepoint pillow, rah-rah slogan, but exactly right. That's what it is, establishing justice in a sinful world. And justice is tenuous and fragile and precarious. And we saw that again and again and again over the last five years. Without being in any way partisan, what we experienced over the last five years shows us what happens when our worst instincts are given free reign. It just so happens that that comment has partisan implications and manifestation, but this is like religious liberty, right? And I'm not both sidesing this at all, but if you're, if you're in a denomination and you achieve uh, predominance, be careful because things ebb and flow. The reason we have religious liberty, the, the argument for religious liberty in the country was that if there's no established religion, then there can be no capacity for tyranny because if you're in charge one day, I promise you're not gonna be in charge some other day and you're gonna be in the, uh, in the minority. So I wanna talk about two moments where we did reach something that is worth remembering and learning from. And the first is Bloody Sunday, which we celebrate the anniversary of this, this coming weekend. Uh, in my native region, again, I'm, I'm a boringly heterosexual white Southern male Episcopalian. Things work out for me in this country by and large. But I was born into a region and a country that had functional apartheid at the ballot box. And it was because of men and women who were born on the other side of that line of apartheid that we led to, we were led to a greater fulfillment of that most important sentence in the English language. So just a word about John Robert Lewis. Um, Born on February 21st, 1940 in Troy, Alabama. The only white man he saw growing up was the mailman. 
He read about the Brown decision and he spent all summer, you know, came down, I think on May 17th, he spent all summer waiting for all his new white friends to come to school and was surprised when no one showed up in September. He overcame a stutter by preaching to the chickens in his yard. As he later said, after 30 years in Congress, the chickens listened to him more carefully than many of his colleagues. He absolutely absorbed the gospel itself. And nobody had less interest in denominational and theological uh, ecclesiastical questions than John Lewis. And that may be one of the reasons that I've never met anyone who more fully embodied the gospel in himself than John. And he walked among us until last July. I've known three deeply, deeply em empathetic politicians in my life. I've been very fortunate. John Lewis, George H.W. Bush, and the 46th president of the United States. All three had the capacity, and I believe it was rooted in reality and was not simply artifice, of understanding how the world looked through someone else's eyes, which is a fundamental political gift. But I would argue more importantly, it's the fundamental human gift. If we don't have the capacity to empathize, to reach out and not simply clinch a fist, then the entire democratic lowercase d experiment is gonna fall apart because life itself then falls apart if we see each other reflexively as enemies and rivals instead of as neighbors. It's why the commandment first in Leviticus and then echoed by Jesus to love your neighbor as yourself is so radical and revolutionary. Who the hell wants to love their neighbor as themselves? I like my neighbors well enough, but do I really want to love them the way I love myself? No. But that's why it endures as one of those goalposts to which we are trying to bend that arc of justice. And so Jesus was one of the swervers. Without John's embodiment of the gospel, he would not have been on that bridge in 1965. He wouldn't have been on those buses in 1961. He wouldn't have been at the lunch counters here in Nashville in 1960. And he would not have been what I think he was, which was a genuine saint. Um, and I don't say that to make him put him on a pedestal out of reach. Saints don't have to be perfect. They don't have to be saviors. They just have to be a little bit better than the rest of us. And if they do go on a pedestal, they go on the pedestal not to become, not to go out of reach, but so that more of us can see them. And we do the past no favors at all by mindlessly celebrating. We should not look up at the past, look up at heroes of the past adoringly, but nor should we look down at them condescendingly. We need to look them in the eye take the measure of what they were, what they faced, the voices of their time, and see, did they swerve? Did they help the line, the line of justice swerve? Or did they push it back the other way? And John Lewis, I think more than anyone else I've ever met, was someone who insisted on the swerve, embodied a sense of genuine empathy and charity, 
and left us a better country. But it's an imperfect country. And that's where we come in. Immense work remains. Again, your presence here now signals your deep commitment to that work. But what I would just urge you to do in the maelstrom of the present, you know, when you're scrolling on your phone, which you're probably doing now, trying to see what outrage has occurred, although there are fewer, aren't there? It's kind of interesting. <laughs> it's, sort of, it's sort of sweet. It's like we've had a kind of national cultural Zoloft dose uh, since January 20th. Um, uh, I'll probably get in trouble for that, but that's okay. Um, how can we keep the energy going to swerve that line in the midst of everything that's going on? And it's incredibly difficult. The best line in Tom Sawyer is Mark Twain writes that an evangelist came to town who was so good that even Huck Finn was saved until Tuesday, right? So I sometimes call this the Wednesday strategy. How do we stay saved till Wednesday? And then maybe that helps us on Thursday and Friday and Saturday. That's the work. And I would argue that it's keeping in mind the stories of where this has worked in the past. And John Lewis clearly represents an example of that. The second example is gonna be unusual perhaps in this context, but it's about November, 1989. And it's about as different a guy as you can possibly imagine than John Robert Lewis, and that's George Herbert Walker Bush. Hard to imagine two people born in the same century, born in the same country, who started life, this goes to your previous conversation, who started life in such different places in the United States. George H.W. Bush, the son of a senator born in Milton, Massachusetts, raised in Greenwich, once was talking about the depression to uh, Ronald Reagan and Reagan said, what was it like for you, George? And Bush said, well, we had to reuse tennis balls. You know, this was not exactly uh, a difficult upbringing, but to whom much was given, much was expected. And Bush lived that. Bush was not a perfect guy, but he left us a more perfect union. November 1989, November 9th, the Berlin Wall falls because of decades upon decades of work around the world, dissidents behind the Iron Curtain, American taxpayers, American soldiers, people all around the free world. The prayers of the faithful, praying for the captive nations. It all comes to a climax in November 89. George H.W. Bush is president of the United States. He'd been shot down as a 20-year-old uh, uh, in the Pacific in the last great struggle against totalitarianism. He fully understood war. He'd given his life to the Cold War. And what does he do? Nothing. Virtually nothing. He doesn't have a press conference. He won't go to the briefing room. He sits in the Oval Office. He lets the press come in. Leslie Stahl starts beating him up uh, and says, you know, you don't seem very emotional about it. And Bush says, I'm not an emotional kind of guy, which was insane. He would cry if the Red Sox lost, right? I mean, the guy, the guy was totally emotional. Why was he so removed? Because he was thinking about someone else. He was thinking about Gorbachev. 
who had a hardcore right wing that did not want to see Soviet greatness go away, did not want to see communism go away. And if you doubt me on this, if you think I'm being sentimental, I refer you to a young KGB officer who was part of that right wing named Vladimir Putin. He knew, as Bush put it, if I stuck it in Gorbachev's ear, I think he meant I, but as we know, English was not a strong suit for either father or son. Um, my favorite Bushism was when he announced right before the 88 election, it's no exaggeration to say the undecideds could go one way or the other. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. Uh, he knew that America taking a victory lap would complicate Gorbachev's life. And so he took a political hit at home in the national and international interest. He's, he bent that arc. If, I, if we had been here in 1960, 1970, 1980, or even in 1987, 88, and someone had said, the Iron Curtain is going to fall without a single American soldier in a forward military position beyond the ordinary base structure of the time, you would have thought I was crazy or that I was some soft dove. But it happened. And Bush managed that incredibly brilliantly because of human qualities that were about empathy. He put himself in Gorbachev's shoes. We'd been saved 40 or 30 years before by Jack Kennedy doing the same thing. I saw Julian uh, Sorensen. During XCOM, Kennedy insisted that you had to see the world as Khrushchev saw it. And we're here because of the skill, because of the empathy of those who were able to see themselves and see a common good, a common humanity, if not common interests. Our interests can conflict. That's fine. But if nothing else can happen in this era, can we bend that arc so that politics can become once again an arena for the mediation of interests instead of this reflexive clash of identity? And I think that's the work that's before us. And I think if we follow the example of John Lewis, I think if we follow the example of President Bush, I think we'll be in good shape. I'm honored that you had me. I'm delighted uh, to uh, be honored. Uh, and whatever Patricia says next, we'll do. Thank you, John. Thank you, John. That was a perfect way uh, to end the evening. Uh, we've heard so many voices with wisdom and empathy uh, and experience and deep caring for this country and a commitment to helping us find common ground and common good again. That couldn't have been a more perfect note to, for us to end on. So thank you. And thank you to all our awardees tonight. It really has been an extraordinary evening and I, I, it's been an honor to, to be a part of it. And an honor to, to watch it all. I, um, there's many commenting in the chat section that this has got to live on YouTube um, because, because we are so lucky to have been able to hear from Chelsea Ernst, Clarissa Ward, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Ken Burns. I mean, imagine the first time Fiona Hill, Bill Taylor, Alex Vindman, and Marie Yovanovitch are together after what our nation experienced. Senator Corker, Ray Dalio, and you, John Meacham. Uh, what an extraordinary evening to be able to share with all of you um, and, and to Patricia Duff of The Common Good. Thank you so much for having John and I as part of your evening and it's back to you.
Thank you so much, Margaret and John. Nobody could have done it better. You've shepherded this. Uh, we've just had been inspired. We have been moved by our stories. We've you've made us smarter. You've made us better. All of our honorees. We're we're so thrilled to have you with us tonight. And who could have thought that John Meacham would be so darn funny? Um, <laughs> you know, I've got two of my heroes up here: is John Lewis and and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, who uh, inspire me every every day. But all of you, Chelsea, Carissa, Penn, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Fiona Hill, Ambassador William Taylor, Alexander Vindman, Masha Yovanovitch, Senator Corker, Ray Dalio, and John Meacham, thank you so much. Thank you so much. We hope we see you again soon. Thank you.